Good evening. It's good to be with you guys again. Um, this uh, this evening, it's going to be hard for me to not say this morning, so this evening, uh, we're going to have as our primary text, um, it's going to be Second Chronicles. So if y'all want to go ahead and turn in your, your Bible to Second Chronicles chapter 6. There are oftentimes, there are passages in Scripture that open up the Bible for us in, in ways that are helpful for our own understanding of how to make sense of the grand story of Scripture. Um, what we're going to look at tonight is a part of that opening up of Scripture that helps us make sense of much of the bigness of what God is doing. And so before we get much further, I'll go ahead and lead us in prayer. So if you would, bow your heads. Holy Father, we do thank you again that uh, tonight we are able to join together, that we are giving our, our time and our attention um, to hear your word taught and preached. And so I ask, Holy Father, that you would give us an increasing desire and burden to be more and more like you. I pray, Father, that as we hear from your word tonight, that you would help us to be able to understand uh, places in our lives that need to find uh, a wrestling with to be conformed. Uh, to be submitted to your goodness. I pray, Father, that you would give us success, not only as private individuals, but I pray for this church, that you would bless them to be holy as you are holy, a people called out for your own good works. I ask, Father, that you would bless the teaching and preaching of your word this evening. And it's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. So, in the book of Chronicles, um, we're going to look specifically at how it is that Solomon prayed. And when Solomon prays, he exposes us to us something that is just radically significant for the entire storyline of Scripture. Um, one of the things that we, we talked about this this morning, but one of the, the things that happens the week of Christmas is that you have these family get-togethers. And what, what needs to take place is an intentional deepening of fellowship. Um, so if you have family, there is fellowship that's centered around the concept of your shared blood. Does that sound about normal? There are people that you're going to get together with this week that you have got commonalities with a fellowship that is focused on your ancestors. And so you get together with them because it makes sense that way. Others you, you get together with because you sit down together and you are of similar experiences. You have friends, and you get together with friends because your background is the same. Um, has anybody ever been to a restaurant where you sat down with a, a complete stranger, and just that was how you, you sat down in a restaurant, and you anticipated other strangers coming to sit with you? Anybody ever done that? Is it, is it rare, or is it regular? It's rare. Why, why do you think it's rare? Normally, if you go to sit down at a table and you're there at a restaurant, those who sit with you have something in common with you being there. It's usually not completely just random. And the idea is that we, we spend time over meals together with people that have something that we are now fellowshipping over, that we are spending time together with on purpose. So... Oftentimes it could be like a business deal, it could be 
some sort of get-together with a neighbor or a friend or a family worker, family member, or a co-worker. Um, and when you do that, the, the, the means of getting together is that commonality. In the church, there is a commonality that brings everybody together. And it's two things. There's a shared confession that brings everybody into the church. So one aspect of it is we have got a glorious God in heaven that has sent his son to save us. And the other is we're all in need of saving. We come together because of our shared background in sin. And because of a shared background in sin, we have got a common bond in the fellowship that Christ has made possible for us because it's his blood that binds us. Does that make sense? All right. So this only, though, is operational if we truly understand what it is that God has been preparing his people to do and to be from the very beginning. So first I'll go ahead and we'll, we'll sit here and chronicle for just a moment. And then we're going to kind of be in several different places. So heads up. So in Second Chronicles, um, the, the, the institution of the tabernacle, uh, I'm sorry, the temple was being put together. Um, does anybody know who built or who was initially going to build the, the temple, whose design and desire it was initially? It was, it was David. Why was David not the one that actually built it, though? Yeah, God said, it's not for you to build. And the reason that it's not for him to build is because God tells us, you shed way too much blood. So his son was going to finish it off. So David didn't just like sit by and just wait for his son to get old enough. He began the collection of materials so that when his son became king, he could finish the job. And so in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, that's what we see. Uh, we see the temple having been finished, and then it's going to be dedicated. So here's the, the prayer, though. This is starting in verse 12 is where I'm going to begin. And it says, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands. Solomon had made a bronze platform uh, five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high, and had set in the court, set it in the court, and he stood on it. Then he knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands towards heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their hearts, who have kept uh, your law, um, who have kept with your, your servant David, my father, which you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have filled, fulfilled to this day. Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep, uh, keep for your servant David my father, which you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk in my laws as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David. And this is the, the focal point then. But will God indeed with dwell dwell with man on the earth. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet, have regard to this prayer of your servant and to his plea. 
O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be open day and night towards this house, the place where you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servants offer toward this place, and listen to the pleas of your servants of your people Israel when they pray toward this place, and listen from heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. What Solomon has done is he has stood before the people, he's created basically a a massive platform that he's going to stand before the entire congregation of Israel, and this is what he does before them. He makes it clear that his his covenant that God had brought him and his father and everybody that would extend past him to follow the law, to walk in it day by day. And as he walks in the law, he's he's expressing his intention to be faithful, to be consistently doing God's will. And so then he steps back, though, and he offers up this, this kind of curious response. In the midst of dedicating the temple, in the midst of what will happen, which is the glory of the Lord will fill the temple and it will be uh, evident that God's presence has come into the place, he asks the question, but will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Why does he ask that? Why is it that Solomon, who is there for the very purpose of dedicating this temple, to bring God's presence in, why would he then turn around and ask the question, well, is this really going to happen? Is Solomon displaying a lack of faith? Or is he recognizing that there is a very significant theological incongruity here? Now, this is where we kind of start to move around a little bit. So, if you go to Genesis chapter Three, for example. Genesis chapters 2 and 3. And you may want to keep your place there in Scripture. So Genesis chapter 2 and 3. What, does anybody know what happens in Genesis chapter 2 and 3? You can even include chapter 1 if it helps. So we have the creation. He creates like a few things or does this include all things? Chapters 1 through 3, we'll throw the whole whole lot together. Everything that gets made is made, chapters 1 through 3. Now, the, the thing to pay attention to, though, is when God creates Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, he puts them, does he put them, like, on separate mountains or in separate parts, like, hemispheres? Where, where does he put them? In the same garden? Yeah, he puts them in the same garden, and then do they have any kind of responsibility when they're inside the garden? Take care of it. And it's not just a matter of, okay, well, you're in the garden now. Don't screw this up. It's you're supposed to to tend it, to cultivate it, to grow it, to extend it. The original responsibility of Adam and Eve was to take the small garden and to see it become worldwide to see the garden be pressed out because it was going to be the place where God's, uh, we'll say stewards, where they saw the glory of the Lord cover the earth. And so their role was going to be to see this extended. But inside the garden, 
who was with them in the garden? We got Satan's in the garden. Is he the only one? Who else walks in the garden in the cool of the day? God does. Do you see this happening anywhere else outside of Scripture where God genuinely just walks along with his common people? Outside of the incarnate deity, outside of Jesus himself, we don't see this anywhere. So what we find, though, is that in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, we find that God has created a perfect place to dwell alongside of humanity. And it says that he, whenever Adam and Eve finally do sin, it says that they hear the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This is Genesis chapter 3. And... Adam and Eve, they do something very, very telling when they hear him coming. So we'll we'll read it here. It says in verse 8, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? Why did they hide? And why was it odd that they would do so? They were naked. Now, were they naked before? So they were naked before. They eat from the tree that they were commanded. Don't do that. Uh, what's the tree called? All right. Is it the tree of? Is it simply the tree of good and evil? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what ends up happening is Adam and Eve take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and what they did was they decided that the fruit that came from it would make them wise and be like God. The irony is, they were already like God. The difference was that now they were going to have a new way of knowing good and evil by their own standard. When they ate from this fruit, it was going to make them distinctly wise in the sense that they would have a new moral standard of how the world operates because they were going to act like the king. Does that make sense? Because the whole garden, the whole of created world was God. He is the king. He is the one who spoke and all of creation came into existence. So the next thing that takes place when Adam and Eve rebel is they acted like they were the authority. So they eat from the tree And they have their eyes open, and now it's not wisdom that they know. What is it that they now recognize? Shame, isn't it? Did God tell them what would happen if they rebelled this way? What did he say would happen? They would die. So the cost of sin is what? It's death. Now, I I say this a lot. Y'all have never heard me say this, so it's new to you. But, fair enough. Because the cost of sin is death. And Adam and Eve were the first ones to eat from the tree and rebel. And God said that in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Did they die when they ate it? Did they, did they start the process of dying? God said, in the day that you eat it, you will die. Did God lie? So what we need to understand then is that what's taking place is that death 
is first and foremost theological. Before it is biological, it is theological, which means that what death truly is, it is being cut off from the living one. In other words, true death is being removed from fellowship with God. Fellowship, being in his presence, being removed from him, that's true death. Now, I'm just going to peek down towards the end of Scripture. Does anybody remember, what is the final punishment? What does the second death look like? Yeah, it's, it's a, there's a lake of fire, and it's separation. You are no longer able to be in fellowship with God, and it's an eternal state. Now we come back here to this. When Adam and Eve rebel against God, and they look down and they see their shame, and they seek to hide themselves, what we see is that instantly, death has already begun. The consequences of sin has already begun to overwhelm them, and they see God coming, and they know that they are unfit for His presence, and so they banish themselves into the trees, and they try to hide. What do they do once they get into the trees? They look around, and they see some big fig leaves, and think, that'll, that'll do the trick. That'll make it to where that now when God comes to question me, I can stand in His presence. And so they make for themselves clothes of leaves. They head back out to hear from God and to answer His questions. And does God say, okay, well, you can't stay here because you've, you've rebelled, but those clothes that you've got, that'll do. Anybody remember, what, it, what does he do to deal with their shame and their nakedness? He kills an animal. And so in the killing of an animal, what does he do? he done? Yeah, he sacrificed an animal, and in so doing, he reinforces the fact that the cost of sin really is death. You don't ever have a sinless animal prancing around in the prairies, because if they don't have their skin, they don't have life. So he takes these skin garments, and he wraps them up in it. And in so doing, he hides their shame temporarily. He doesn't say this is a full and final fix, because if it had been, then he would have just welcomed them back into the garden and just told them, hey, don't take those off. But instead, he says, you can't stay here. And he sends them out of the garden. They are banished from fellowship. And so we see again that the role of fellowship being severed is the big problem in the entirety of Scripture. Why is it, though? Why is it that man and woman, that humanity and all creation with it, is no longer able to have fellowship with God? Yeah, now, if we were to kind of tease this idea out, that, that sin, what are some ways that we would describe this? What, what's the way that the Bible calls us to be and that we regularly fail to be that makes us unfit for His presence? He can't look upon sin because God is what? Perfect and he's holy. So what characterizes us and our sin? Our unholy. We are unholy. We are wildly unfit to be in his presence because what's the cost of sin? Death. 
And so for us to try to get back into his presence would be to us what? Death. So think again about, say, the stories that we know. Stories like, say, um, the Tower of Babel. What was the great attempt at the Tower of Babel? To reach heaven. They wanted to gain access to heaven, to get into God's presence in their state of fallenness. They did not see it as a problem, and so God came down and he confused their languages and dismantled their project and made it to where that they could not further proceed. When Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden, does God say that this is really, really bad and good luck with it? Or does he tell them that there's any hope? You can't fix this. Just like you can't cover your own shame with leaves, you can't fix this problem, but I can. So in 3.15, 14 and 15 here, when God is looking at them in their shame and in their failure, which is, I'm just going to go ahead and say, we really need to lean into this. That God looks at humanity at the core of their failure at the inception of their error, knowing what's to come, and he looks at them and says, you have not made a blunder that I'm not able to fix. You have not failed in such a way that is beyond my scope to deal with. And so he tells them what he's going to do. And this is the entire Bible storyline unfolds from this one. He says, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. The entire storyline of Scripture presses forward as a fight in sense between the offspring of the woman and Satan and his dominion. And it says, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, the way that victory is going to come about will be through the offspring of the woman. And this offspring of the woman will have a pain-filled victory over the serpent. Where's Adam? Why, Why is he not talking to Adam? Why does he not look at Adam and say, your offspring or y'all's offspring? Adam's not mentioned. He's not in the picture yet because God is not going to bring about the deliverer from Adam. It's going to be through the woman. And the man will not be involved in this deliverance. So, then to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing and pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and you have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God tells them collectively that the ground is cursed now, and that this way forward is going to be filled with pain and calamity and hardship. And yet, despite all of that, 
you're not on your own. And then he says, the man called his wife, uh, his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man uh, at, at the east of the garden of Eden. He placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard to the way of the tree of life. Why does he not want, want the people to come back and take from the tree of life? what would never be possible? Salvation, redemption, and fellowship. God could never have his people in his presence. There would forever be a gulf fixed between man and God. And so God in his grace kicked them out. And so what we see is that God in mercy does not allow them to remain. He banishes them so that they can survive. He sends them out to protect them. Knowing, though, that all the while where they're going, it's dangerous. There's something much more dangerous than, say, running across, you know, talking snakes and bears or wolves or whatever it could be. Meeting a holy God in your sin is much more dangerous. And so God in his wonderful, glorious mercy says, can't stay. He loves too deeply to allow them to stay. Now, jump back forward then into Second Chronicles. Why does, why does Solomon ask the question, can God really dwell with man on the earth? What does Solomon realize? What's well, not been dealt with? Yeah, this problem of sin still persists. Can God really dwell with us? And we survive it? If you look over at Exodus, go over to Exodus chapter uh, 19 and 20. It's an easy book to find. It's the next one. Um, Exodus 19 and Exodus 20. Um, God just took the people of Israel out of Egypt. Uh, he saved them. And does anybody remember how he gets them out of Egypt? The plagues. He does how many? Does anybody remember? Were these like garden variety plagues or or were these like significant, massive, overwhelmingly obvious works of God and attacks against the system of God that Egypt held on to? So there was this this wrenching of his people out of the hand of Egypt and he pulls them out. He rescues them out and he takes them to this this far-off mountain, Mount Sinai. And on the mountain, he invites Moses to come up to the top of it to meet with him. And what's the task that he's going to go back with? He's going to tell the people something that God wants from them. Yeah, he's going to give them the Ten Commandments, isn't he? What he's going to do in addition to that is he's going to go down and he's going to tell the people, in three days' time, you are all invited to come up onto the mountain and meet God. All of you. So for three days, be consecrated. 
set yourselves apart, be holy for three days, and then after the period of three days has passed, we're all going to travel back up to the mountain, and we're going to meet God. He's going to turn us into a kingdom of priests. What's the job of a priest? The job of a priest is to communicate God to the people. They were going to be a nation that did that. That was their task. But, in the middle of the three days, they are looking up at the mountain, and they see that on top of the mountain, there's some stuff happening. Anybody know what happens on top of that mountain? It's, it looks terrifying. Now, their concern is, and it's a fair concern, is that if they go up on the mountain, what, what could possibly happen? Yeah, that they might die. They were afraid that if they went up onto the mountain after the three days, that they would accidentally peer through and see God, who is holy, and they aren't, and it would cause them to be killed. And so they say to Moses, we're not good to go up there. Why don't you go up there and you just tell us what he wants? You just, you be our go-between. What did God want? Fellowship. He wanted his people to be with him. And yet, his people were unwilling as they were truly sick. So, God then comes to them, but it's in the form of the tabernacle initially. And what happens is God comes inside a mobile tent. And on the deepest level inside the tent, does anybody remember what's on the very middle of the inside part of that tent? What do they call that? Say it again. Holy of Holies, the, the Ark of the Covenant's there, right? And God's presence, he says, will come and meet them there, but not all of them, because they refuse to come up onto the mountain. So they have a kingdom of priests instead of a kingdom with priests. I'm sorry, other way around. They're a kingdom with priests, thank you. They're not all priests. So, they now have a representative that goes in on behalf of the whole and deals with God. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that has to take place. Least of which is what? This is a symbol for something being killed. They had to kill an animal before the high priest could go into the presence of God. Why? Because he had to confess in a sense that he is worthy of death. And in order for him to be cleansed, something had to die. So before he goes in, he kills an animal for himself. Then he also kills animals for the people. And he goes in before the Holy of Holies to allow God's presence to remain among them, and in so doing, the people and the priests would be cleansed of their guilt for a year. Now, they had to keep doing this. Why do they have to keep doing this year after year? They kept sinning. The problem wasn't just that they happened to you know, sin. The problem was so incredibly deep that this type of bloodshed, this type of sacrifice was not going to be significant enough. It would not fix the problem, because how did Genesis 3 tell us the problem would get dealt with? Is it with a bull will come and save you? 
you know, you've got these imageries kind of swirling together, and it's the Lamb of God that will take away the sin of the world. It's the Son of the Virgin that will come and take away the sin of the world. It's not going to be simply just a matter of sacrificing another bull. But all the while, what we see is that God's desire is to come close and dwell among his people, and yet this paradox remains. How will holy God dwell among unholy people? And the answer is that God is creating these types of ways and avenues for his presence to come mediated through one who will shed blood to house it. So when we get to Second Chronicles chapter 6, and Solomon asks that question, everybody there understood why the question was being asked. Is this going to work? Will this fix things? Will this be a return to paradise? And the answer is no. This isn't the fix that we need. The fix that we need is something way more significant and way more costly. Yes, even in the midst of this this temporary measure, it points. This temporary blessing, temporary as it was, pointed elsewhere. Because the fact that the question was being asked meant that this was not the full and final response of God. This was like a band-aid for a gunshot wound. It may stop the bleeding for a bit, but you don't want to keep that being permanent. It won't create healing. And so the storyline continues because what happens when they get the, te- uh, the, the temple in place? Do they have a glorious time with it? in Solomon's reign? Solomon's reign is one of the high marks of the entirety of Israel's past. This is a time when we see Israel being blessed in ways that make it to where that the rest of the world looks at them and asks, what's going on? And Israel is able and willing to say the, the cause of our success is right there in the middle of our country. Inside Jerusalem, there is a building called the temple. And inside the temple is the living God of all the earth. He is our God. If you want to know him, you know him through looking at us. And then their role was to maintain fellowship with God by keeping the law. Now, do you want to be in that system where you keep fellowship with God by keeping the law? This is what Paul struggles with in the New Testament, is that he himself was a Jew of Jews. He was one who kept the law with zeal, and yet he found that the more that he pressed into the law, the more it taught him that he was inadequate and that he needed something else. And so ultimately what we end up discovering is that the entire scriptures are catapulting us forward to continue to look for how is it that God is going to satisfy this great need of a fix to our problem of not being holy. And so God gives us these promises that he's coming to actually deliver to us a new heart. He says, I'm going to take the heart of stone that you have, and I'm going to remove it. And I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. Now, these could be read as kind of independent threads. 
And yet, as the storyline moves into the New Testament, what you find is God has taken what seems like independent threads and he's woven them together, together into a single strand. Christ. All of these converge into the person and the work of Jesus. And what we find is that how it is that we can't have fellowship with God because of our sin, Christ is going to bear that burden on our behalf and he's going to the cross for us. So how does he do that? shedding of blood, which requires that he comes in the flesh. The son of the virgin would come as one of us without sin of his own. He who had no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. The transfer that gets made is made because Jesus came and was perfect. And then in his righteous obedience, He makes it possible for us to be declared righteous. So, how does how did the 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 blood shed in the Old Testament how did God count how did that get transferred to the account of the one who did the bloodshed? It was by faith. By faith in the fact that this is how God operates. That God has spoken and said that the cost of sin is death and I believe it by faith and so I kill an animal and then I enter into the presence of God believing that this will suffice for now. That's what the high priests were doing. And now what we get in the New Testament is we are told to place our faith in Jesus because God has said that on Him I'll place all your guilt and if you will but place your faith in Him I will welcome you back as though you were righteous. And so what we find is that the long-awaited difficulty in Scripture of how do we get to be with God again is answered in Jesus who came to be with us, to die for us, to return us. Now flip over to Revelation chapter 21. And I'm I'm suggesting from the very beginning onward now is that the whole Bible is really about having fellowship with God again that it was ours, it was broken, and that God sent the rescuer, Jesus, to fix it. We get to Revelation 21, the the tail end of Scripture here, and it says, this is John, and he's he's seeing this final climactic vision, this glorious vision that he gives into the church, and he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Does that sound like something we've heard before? Is that not exactly what Solomon asked? It's the same exact phrase, but said as a positive affirmation and no longer as a question. And the thing that has changed is that Christ has risen from the grave and that by faith in him, this is reality. And he says, he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And then you continue to read on 
and says, And he who seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. We looked at that this morning as well. And he also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give, I will give from the springs of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I'm going to jump down now to verse 22. It says, And I saw no temple in this city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring in, into, bring into it the glory of the uh, and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then this final portion here, he says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as a crystal, uh, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The overwhelming emphasis in this is that God is going to be with us in person. That, that means then that the God who never changes remains unchanged. What then must have changed? Us. God has changed us and has fitted us for his presence. This is what the great aim of Scripture is moving towards. Now, we just have a minute or so more, but this means then that the application for all those who place their faith in Christ is to begin the process of being prepared for that moment in this moment. Uh, John Owen, a famous um, Puritan pastor, made the comment, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. The task of all who follow Christ is to learn to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. This then changes the way that we have fellowship of any kind. If you have uh, get-togethers this week, you have the opportunity to have fellowship that is centered around your common ancestry, your blood. You also have the opportunity when you get together with family members who happen to be believers to have fellowship of a different type centered around the blood of another. If you have the opportunity to be with friends and family that are not followers of Jesus, you have an opportunity to have fellowship that is say, um, able to be leading you elsewhere. 
this common ground that we call sin. Only one of you then will know what to lead you out of it. So in the course of being able to have fellowship with brothers and sisters who know Jesus, enjoy it deeply. Press it all the way into the corners of your life. And for those of you who get the chance to spend time with people who are not followers of Jesus, know that you have the opportunity then to invite them in to see why life can have a deep richness that they are missing. That there is a cost of sin and it's death. And it means so much more than simply not breathing. And so I encourage you this week to think deeply about how it is that you can point people to the opportunity to enjoy God's presence. Enjoy God's people. The church. Prioritizing time with the people of God. It changes everything. And so I'll go ahead and uh, close in a little prayer. Holy Father, again, we give you thanks that tonight the common bond that, that unites us is not simply that we are all in just the same geographic region or speak the same language, but that we are all sinners saved by grace who call upon your name for salvation. I pray, Father, that you would bless us this week uh, to, to look to you, to be encouraged by your presence with us, and I ask, Father, that you would help us to lead lives that are holy, hating sin and loving your mercy. And so we thank you, Father, for Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.